Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. Welcome back. This is Oren Claff with the Dealmaker Podcast. I'm here with Greg McKee of Trip Therapeutics. Greg, thank you for driving on over. You're you're uh, one of the few guys who's close to us, so came here. Glad to be here, Oren. Thanks for giving me an excuse to get out of the house a little bit. So we're here in the studio, and you know we've been interviewing many times cannabis guys, and cannabis is interesting. Uh, because it generates a lot of excitement. You take your barbecue company, you take your keyboard manufacturing company, you know, you take your uh, coffee company, and then you add the word cannabis to it, and now you have an exciting public company. Uh, so not since the dot-com were you able to just add a word to the end of whatever it is you do, right. dog-walking right. cannabis, yeah. and then have an exciting company. But now, uh, and so as you and I were talking, the company you're – running is trip therapeutics is in psychedelics and so i said okay and we talked about it is a cannabis part two right yeah so it's interesting thought process right so some of our investors are kind of viewing the marketplace as yeah maybe this is cannabis 2.0 and i think that part of the reason they're thinking that is that many of them did incredibly well right they just made absolute fortunes in the market a lot of them are up in Canada, we happen to be publicly traded up there, which is fantastic, by the way, right? Um, but this, I think, could be a lot different. So rather than sort of having recreational uses, rather than focusing on growing, I mean, and some people are going to grow shrooms, right? Some people are going to harvest and extract and things like that. A lot of us are in the industry are very focused on synthetic generation of this chemistry and then working on kind of real traditional biotech slash pharmaceutical drug development. So it's got a little bit of both elements okay. to it. Okay, well, so much to unpack there. Let's talk about psychedelics. Like, yes, okay. Where did this even come from? Why right. is this an idea? Right. Right? Uh, you know, walk us all through it because now we're hearing it. People are very excited about it. You can add it to the end of your, again, you know, we've right. got a barbecue grill company yeah. and Why? psychedelics. Yeah. Uh, now it's exciting. But, you know, what strikes me is, you know, you and your founder, you're not 23-year-olds. Nothing wrong with 23-year-olds no, yeah. other than their 23-ness. But, uh, you know, you're senior pharmaceutical mm. industry mm. guys with experience in real companies, public companies, real deals, and you can choose anything to do, mm. right? And then this attracted your attention. What is it what? in – about this yeah. psychedelics mm. that have pulled you in and said a this is something b it's something real c we can help people d we can have an exciting company how, how did you get there right so i mean it's really simple right that there's a lot of naturally der derived chemistries around that eventually find their way into kind of more traditional drug development pathways and psychedelics is one of those, right? These chemistries have been around since the 60s and 70s. They've been tested recreationally by a lot of different people. We know that they work. We know that they're well tolerated. And since then, a whole bunch of very well-known academics at like NYU, 
Johns Hopkins, Yale University, and others have been studying these things for the last 30, 40 years. So is there somewhere that we would be familiar, you know, that they've made it into a mainstream molecule that, that has, you know, has gone traditional drug development and made it? Yeah. Not, not yet, which, yeah. Is, which is actually the, the opportunity, right? So nobody's yeah. done that yet. We're just actually making it synthetically again and making it up to, to pharmaceutical grade standards. And it's just getting back into traditional uh, clinical studies, right? So there's one study at the moment uh, that one of the leading players in the space, Compass Pathways, is just finishing recruitment on um, probably next week with about 230 patients. That will be the largest double-blind placebo-controlled study ever done in this type of chemistry. But there's many other companies that are going to be doing similar types of studies in the future, including in other therapeutic areas besides what Compass is working on. So where where is the, you know, what's the big idea from your standpoint? Like, hey, if we could solve X with our uh, therapeutics, then A, we, we would be doing the Lord's work to, you know, extend people's lives that would otherwise right. be sacrificed. Right. Yeah, this is not a, not about having a better drum circle. Exactly, right? Yeah. So this is the whole point that – so the, the way that I first got introduced to these, these chemistries, these molecules, were from some good friends of mine, a number of former Navy SEALs who are here locally in Southern California, all of whom came back from the battlefield with PTSD and depression and other sort of mental disorders, right? And almost every single one of them to a T – swore by using one specific chemistry, 5-MeO-DMT, which is a certain psychedelic. But of course, they had to use it sort of in the back streets, up in Berkeley, down in Mexico. It wasn't, you know, FDA approved. Or but, next door. Or know, next we, door. We have, we have still fit. We have Mark okay. Divine. All right. Next or, door. Or next door, right? Yeah. So they may have been coming next door right? since <laughs> right here in Carlsbad. And, but those guys all swore by it, right? And they said it completely changed their lives. So we, you know, at TRIP, we're, we're not focused on depression. We're focused on pain. But the thing that we're most excited about is that people like Dan Claw, who's a hotshot professor at University of Michigan, who's gotten all the drugs approved and worked on all the drugs that have been approved for fibromyalgia, thinks all those drugs suck. I mean, they just don't work, right? So those patients with fibromyalgia don't have anything else to go to right now. And he believes that this particular pain that they deal with is all mental. And if we can bring these chemistries to market through an FDA uh, pathway, then we think that we can completely change those patients' lives among many, many other patients that suffer from chronic pain. So my podcast strategy is to say funny things until I hear something I actually know something about and then ask some tough questions. <laughs> all right, let's do it. <laughs> pain. Pain. <laughs> so, so I was in a deal uh, in which we were working on genetic uh, markers and identifiers for pain medication in order to predict how you would uh, genetically – what your pre genetic predisposition is to processing different kinds of pain medication. 238 opiates generally on the market. When you have – uh, uh, pain, you know, some kind of chronic pain condition, the goal of your pain doctor is to find some opiates that you don't habituate to too easily, don't leave you completely looped out when you're taking some amount of the medication, but also have some efficacy. So they start cycling you through medications to see what you can genetically um, uh, 
manage within your system. And that's why there's so many opiates, so many different. So when you guys say pain, right, um, how is it better than opiates? And what range of pain is really realistic to look for alternative, you know, medications other than the real uh, hardcore opiates that are in the market? It's, it's such a great point because that's the other benefit we think of bringing these drugs to market is we think that we can get rid of the opioid crisis just for the very reason you said, right? At the moment, the tool in the, the toolkit is opioids, which most patients get addicted to, and they never are able to back away from those. So, but your question's well taken, right? So what types of pain? So the, the pain is very specific types of, of, it's a whole body of different types of pain, but it's very specific. It is, it's always pain that doesn't have something that a physician can go and medically address, right? So there's no addressable pain point, right? Uh, secondly, they've tried every other type of therapy and nothing has worked, right? So a great example of this is phantom limb pain. So this is after patients had an amputation because of some traumatic injury. So there's no limb, right? There's no nerve endings. There's no potential for nerve damage because nothing there yet. The patient still feels pain in that particular limb, right? So it's clearly all in the head. Yeah. It's inside the patient. It's like head, a right? phantom girlfriend pain, but yes, much right. more acute. Yes. Right. Well, I'm not sure which would be more acute, but yes, <laughs> right. Same concept, yeah. right? It's, it's that kind of pain, right? Yeah. That needs to be addressed with essentially a rewiring of the brain. The brain has got some misfirings going on that's yeah. sending these phantom pain signals into that phantom limb that needs to be readdressed. So we think the combination of a psychedelic coupled with psychotherapy to lay down some new tracks could rewire the brain such that the pain goes away. So this is amazing. I'm really interested in this from a million different angles. We got to get into the finance of it, but I recently had a surgery and they gave me 18 oxycodone. You know, it's post-surgery, hmm. so they prescribe it. So I took one holy fucking shit like that stuff is amazing so i still have 17 left by right. the way if you want them they're 18 dollars okay. each Eight, yeah uh, i'll <laughs> uh, take i'll take the whole lot i mean <laughs> I'm just, you know uh 18 it's the same same price as down by the high school um and and so i was fortunate to be recovering fast enough to not have to be on it but that stuff is they said you have to be careful because you can addicted on three pills. And I totally get it because it gives you, uh, I, I don't take that stuff. And so I'm not habituated to it, but it gives you euphoria. So you wake up for sure. In a mm. total state of everything. I mean, talk way, about lot, life uh, is good, yeah, right? A lot of people are going you do. Uh, how do you not know this about drugs? That's why they're called drugs. drugs. Right. But for me, I don't I think I was like, Whoa, this is so, the, so you total state of euphoria, uh, and so the physician said, because that was your reaction to them, you need to be especially careful about this stuff. I fortunately don't have a personality, you know, that is addictive to anything, you know, except for cars and, you know, alcohol and coffee and, you know, work. A few and, of those good things, yeah, right? But, yeah. you know, not a really addictive personality. Uh, but, but they said, because of your personality and because of your response to it, you need to be mm. super careful about this stuff. So how do you, how does this stuff circumnavigate the stuff you're working on these really addictive brain profiles that is, you're just you know grabbing uh you know if you think about uh, uh raiders of the lost ark right so he you know grabs an idol and replaces a sandbag right but it yes. didn't work in the movie either right, right? No, so it did not work <laughs> is that what we're just you know doing here is taking away one opiate 
and replacing another? Definitely not. So on, on a bunch of different levels, right? So first of all, the mechanism of action is totally different, but more importantly, it's kind of to your question, right? So we're not going to give people tablets they're, and they're also not going to be going home with those drugs in hand with 17, 18 capsules that they can use for the next couple of weeks or sell in the street for whatever the price might be. Right. So our, so two things happen. First of all, most likely everyone's going to be taking this in a pretty controlled setting, meaning they're going to be going into a clinic or some sort of treatment center and there'll be physicians or psychiatrists or psychologists there with them to monitor them. And they'll be only given drug that day for that particular overall experience. And so it's a combination of the drug plus the psychotherapy that's the overall treatment regimen. And there's no way they can walk out the door, the door with, with, with drug in hand for, you know, first, second of all, the mechanism of action is totally different and is non-addictive. We believe at least based on the evidence right now, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but, but at this point, nothing seems to indicate that there'd be anything like what happens with opioids, for example. And so this, that's amazing before I get in the business of it, then um, is this something, you know, that you guys inside the company would try yourselves uh, for any, you, you know, is it just, is it so specific to pain or because I heard you mention depression or PTSD and a, and a range of things. Right. I'm so, trying so, to wrap my yes, arms around. Right. So, it's, so yeah. it's not specific to pain. It's specific to a certain type of pain, but that, that common thread is some sort of, um, some sort of misfiring of the brain signals, right? So it can, it touches anxiety, it, it touches um, eating disorders, it touches depression, PTSD, pain, right? Anywhere where there's just these misfirings in the brain that need to be essentially opened up and rewired, yeah. right? So in our particular chemistry is, it's slightly different, but it's not so different that it's off target compared to the same drugs that are being used for depression, say, for example. So this isn't only for pain. It could be for a wide variety of, of different indications where the patient just sort of needs their brain rewired to, to function a little bit differently. Yeah. Although, you know, the makers of morphine could have the same argument. You know, it's not just for pain. You know, That's it's right. also That's for right. people who are sad, right. you know, or bored, <laughs> right? And when they knew, or, you know, maybe um, uh, insomnia. Good point. Fair <laughs> enough. Right. Yeah, fair enough. But, but no, I, I hear what you're saying. So, so talk to me about the business of doing this. So you, how did you hear about this? How were you recruited into it? And what did you leave to say, this is better than anything else I could be doing? Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the first part of my story was, as I mentioned, I had run into a number of former Navy SEALs could use similar chemistries, right? And just swore by it. Yeah. And then I started doing a little bit of research and realized how much history there is on these chemistries, how long they've been around the safety profile that's pretty fantastic um, and all this evidence that it actually works plus additional academic work that's been done over the last couple of decades in this field to really begin to validate it. And then as, as always in life, right, I bumped into a good friend of mine who I've known for a long time, who was the founder of, of trip and he was looking to expand the board. He also needs some help on the management you, team. You, you, it, it, in, in fact, partly the name, the name was the hook for me when I heard it was trip therapeutics, Yeah, you know, have a trip tryptamine is, you know, the chemistry you're working with. I mean, that pretty much sold me on the company. Yeah. But yes, I tripped over Bill's shoelace and, and, and here, here I am at the company. And so then let's talk about a fairly young company. You're coming in and 
so, so I think a lot of people are excited by the idea of, you know, something leading edge, whether it's a therapeutic like this, whether it's a, you know, a SaaS software for creators, whether it's an NFT, whether it's a data visualization, you, you know, for, for B2B, whether it's AI, machine learning, like there's all this stuff on the leading edge of um, next generation business models. It's not fully proven out, but the uh, it's an exciting area. There's lots of money coming in. And so you, you come into this business where there is a, and, and I kind of think about it in terms of squirrel theory. There's a lot of people attracted to it because of the potential. But the further the, sort of they get in the potential, the more nervous they get about, you know, how is this really a business? What are the economics? What are the drivers? How do we raise capital for it? You know, how much capital is needed? When is the demand going to show up? Will the FDA approvals come in? You know, uh, and and will we turn this? So it's like a squirrel. They, they're attracted to it and then they run away from it, you know, and then they come a little closer to it and then they run away from it. We've all seen these, you know, squirrels in this back sure, and forth right. cycle and they either get run over or they mm. make it to safety. <laughs> but uh, so, so talk me through that experience of, you know, investors coming right. towards the company mm. and being excited by it. What's it like being in such an exciting space in which there should be, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars coming to the company, uh, so what excites people and what turns them away? Right. It's, I mean, if I can say it's, re, it's unbelievably dull inside, right? It is as the scrolls are jumping, you know, running across the eight, eight lane freeway to check out that nut that's on the other side and then scared and running back. We're on the other side of the road, just like just whittling away every single day. It's just one little step in front of the other, but what's that's amazing. Yeah. What, what is like anything, yeah. right. And it's going to take a little bit of time to get there, but What's what's encouraging to me is several different things. One of them is that there is just so many people that have been working on this already for such a long period of time that completely see the value of this. And second of all, we we know there's a very tried and true pathway to make money from this as long as we help patients, right? And the the, the probability, the chance that we're going to help patients with this chemistry is so unbelie unbelievably high. It's so different than almost any other brand new therapeutic target brand new small molecule, brand new biologic that we hear about every single day in the biotech space, right? This stuff has been around for a long time. And we, we know that it's been used in a lot of patients and we know, and we've seen the positive effects from it. So it's really all about the execution of validating what we pretty much know to be true, that this, these chemistries are safe and well tolerated and they're effective. And, and then taking all the steps we need to get FDA approval Ultimately, you know, right. So everybody in my team is so. So one, there's all that outside validation from academics, and then everybody in the team are all deep drug development experts with 10, 20, 30 years of experience that we bring to the table. So what happens when you get FDA approval to the company? Well, there's a, a couple of different things that'll happen. I mean, ultimately, my vision is that we take this all the way through FDA approval and that we commercialize it on our own, or at least we're prepared to do that, right? It's very similar to a company yeah. right here, actually, in Carlsbad called GW Pharma that sold to Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Justin Gover is a good friend of mine and CEO, and they did the exact same thing, actually, with a cannabis product for pediatric epilepsy, and they took it all the way through FDA approval and to market. Now, so what happens post-approval is we can begin to market it like any company, which I think we could, 
or along the way, we may decide to license the product to pharma. We may sell the company. We have lots of different choices. We'll have to just see, you know, at that point. So the, something interesting about you, I, I have a friend and he runs a, let's just call it a snowboard company. I can't be too specific because this is some negative information, but he runs a, a snowboard company and, uh, you know, he's brought it, run it, he's growing it at a, it, it was stagnant. It's a household name brand. You would reckon anybody, you know, under the age of 24 would recognize it immediately. Right. And so I was talking to him and I go, where do you snowboard? Uh, you know, what winter sports do you do? He goes, I fucking hate snowboarding. Right. This is a household name brand that anybody would think like the founders are just eating and sleeping with their snowboards and, you know, 200 days a year on the slopes and he's running it, the CEO of it. And, and he goes, yeah, I was brought in because I hate this stuff, right? Because this needs a business. So, but you seem very passionate about the space more so than you were just brought in to, uh, you know, run the spreadsheet, do the patent filings, you know, hire the technologists, uh, fill out the org chart, uh, you know, There's, make sure the funding is in place. You right, seem excited right. about it. What's, it, you know, how does this tie into purpose and values for you? What's lurking, you know, below the surface that's driving you in, in this way for this company? Right. It's, I mean, for me, there's, there's so many different things that we can do, right? Like we were talking about before we got started today. And for, for me, I just always have to believe in ultimately the product, right? And when you can bring a product to market that can help patients in the way that now I see this product can help patients. You can't help but not work on this project. It's it's going to literally be life changing for tens of millions of patients potentially. It's it's so interesting uh, as a as a psychology because most of us, you know, we have so uh, you know I have an online program. I have five thousand companies in there, and you know most of them are working on products. And the thing about products is, you know, here we're drinking these cans, and you know you taste it, and you go, okay, it's sparkling raspberry and hey we can improve the formula put out another batch have users taste it and and there's there's this sort of instant right. feedback or even better you we have a SaaS software we're, we're using this thing called descript a great little program which lets you do a podcast or recording it turns it into a word file you edit the word file and then the word file edits the audio and video oh cool it's so yeah. cool that yeah. thing is like no longer relevant updating like in the app store but every two hours it's like updating updating you have to close update new features update they're like adding two features an hour right and so in so many businesses we're getting to like i put out a video and i see how many likes there are and i, I get that immediate feedback the drink company the SaaS software company the editing software company they have all this immediate instantaneous feedback on the product and how good they're doing and they get to leave the office every day either feeling great or feeling like they didn't hit their their goals and they're not doing well, but at least they know where they are. What's it like? Is a very long question, by the way. Oh, but, but but you know, how do you for for people who are getting into a long cycle project who don't have that immediate feedback? What advice? You know, of 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 seeing the product in the hands of customers every day and getting consumer customer level feedback. How do you stay in the game? How do you stay motivated? How do you stay up? How do you, you know, stay on your Gantt chart without right. that feedback? Yeah. 
it's it's a really good point, right? Especially in a in a project like a drug development, drug discovery type of project that can take years to actually get to that endpoint of FDA approval and commercialization, which is sort of that the big goal, right? So part of it's two things. One of them is you have to keep looking for these earlier signals along the way, right? So interim data, uh, preclinical data, phase one data, phase two data, 2A data, 2B data, phase three data, right? Things like that. Surrogate markers, um, which is a couple of things that we're doing. We're looking at two different surrogate markers that we hope will be added to the industry. You also, you know, look at what everybody else is sort of like what's happening in the academic world, what data they showing up with. But I think also part of it is that, frankly, in this particular arena, I think one of the big things that could come of this is that we learn how to really shorten the, the cycles and figure out how to get through drug development a lot faster. Right now, those, those feedback loops, as you were describing, are just really slow. They're annoyingly slow. And eventually, they're going to need to change. So I think that that's part of the big innovation that's going to take place overall in drug development, even outside of psychedelics. I'm hopeful that maybe along the way we can figure out a way to uh, improve that process. So it, you've been, you know, haven't been doing it for, you know, years and years, but in the year plus you've been doing it, what's the biggest setback that you've had? Or have you not had enough time to have setbacks? <laughs> we, yeah, we've had, we've had a couple setbacks. <laughs> Um, it's not been that long yet. No, my, it's been my, about uh, half a year, but you know, I know you yeah. guys in La Jolla, my coffee didn't come by nine, uh, you I know, I like it yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so one of the, one of so a couple of things. So, um, for, for us, for me personally, for us, one, we rely on a lot of outside people, right? We're a pretty small company in terms of our actual employees. But if you look at the numbers of individuals, consultants, uh, full-time consultants, part-time consultants, outside service providers. If you look at you know, and all the people in the academic institutions we work with, we've got four major academic partnerships in the works right now that have 10 to 20 people each, right? So there's, you know, there's probably a couple hundred people around this project right now. So we've got to rely on all those people to do their little part in, at the right time, right? In, in the best way possible. And every now and then those things don't quite happen. Certain people, certain organizations don't quite hit timelines that you'd expect for one. The, the second thing is we have a bunch of highly creative scientists in our shop and they're, they do want to play squirrel, right? They want to go and chase the, the latest, greatest thing. And, and to keep everybody all in line is a, is a big, big task. And, and that's, that's take, that takes a lot of work and, and effort. And so do you, what kind of person should get into a project where it's going to be a couple of years without, you know, where you're looking to, uh, you know, Hey, you know, we found genetic marker, a B seven T, which is a proxy for L seven, you know, and now we can run 3000 tests in this new, um, you know, genetic exploratory area. And that's your like accomplishment. Right. So, so for people who are getting into these sort of long cycle, um, without real market revenue-driven feedback, what kind of psychology do you need? That's so. So part of it is that that we're we're um, we're not that type of drug development company, right? There's all this history. We have this huge yeah. tailwind behind us yeah. for one. But I think the other is that that everything where you do incredibly well for human beings broadly or financially yeah. takes a while. Like it just doesn't happen. You know, overnight, I think a lot of it is like just looking at 
what what's happening what the, what kind of information is the company kind of pushing out what real significant little you know milestones are they hitting along the way and i think those are the things to track right because we never know a lot of the great stories out there right now have come right to the edge of going bankrupt multiple times even when we all thought they were yeah. perfectly fine right yeah um i was just reviewing this great little recap of tesla for example yeah. i mean they almost went down for the third time in 2017 yeah. That was only four years ago, three and a half years ago, right? And that's already when they had gone through Model X, you know, Model S, right? And then those two, right, two new models. So, I mean, it it takes some time, but I don't I don't think that we're you know we've got so much of a tailwind, and we're pushing out I think some really good um, indicators of of how we're doing. So I, I think those are the things to follow. And when you think about you running the company and somebody else founding it are those really separate mentalities mindsets and founders can't run companies and and you know ceos don't want to take the early stage risk or just did it just happen that's when you stumbled into the project yeah i don't i don't i don't really buy into like such discrete absolutes right i think it it all depends just depends on the personalities of the individual, the the founder of this company has founded a few other companies, and and he's fantastic at that at the really early stage conception, ideation, um, pulling together, you know, kind of cobbling together the initial resources and team, and the other stuff like less of a strength of his. Um, I'm not so great at that, you know, but I I like to get in early. I like to get involved deeply. Um, so in this particular case, it was, you know, kind of that kind of mix up, but I don't, a matchup, but I don't think you can sort of say that it's always one way or another. There's so many different, um, uh, pathways to success. And I think, you know, for me anyway, I just, I am always am open to whatever that path may be. And it may be a path we haven't seen before. Obviously you're running the company as a public company. Whenever I have public company CEOs, they never swear. <laughs> It's just now, now in the private guys, Seriously? the private guys okay. are swearing okay. like, left and, and right. And, and it just like could be sailors. coincident. This isn't a, like a big okay. sample, you know, but generally the level of professionalism and, uh, you know, uh, sort of adopting very uh, more strict business and cultural norms. Uh, you know, I just see a little bit more, but extend Fair that enough. a little bit. What is it like running a public company versus a private company in your mind, like how, how, what are the stark differences? This is, this is where I swear, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, stark differences. (laughs) I mean, the, the number one, the, the biggest difference of a public company is that your cost of capital is in your face every single day. Meaning your share price is on your screen in, in you're looking at it. 20 times a day. That's, that is the number one biggest difference. So, you know, exactly. You're talking about an instant feedback loop in terms of what the street thinks of your performance and how the company's doing that feedback loop is instantaneous, whether you like it or not, or whether it's right or wrong is something completely different, but that's one of the biggest differences for sure. Secondly, there is a lot of regulatory red tape. You've got to go through as a public company. And there's just lots of I's to dot and T's to cross. But do you, I mean, just your, your accountant and your CPA, you know, your law firm and your CPA and your CFO, aren't they doing 95% of that? I sure. Mean, not really sure. I mean, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't end up yeah. on the, you know, in the CEO's desk every single 
time, but you, you're sort of aware of that, right? And you're involved because those people, as you describe, your CFO, your CPAs, your accountants, your tax folks, your legal team, right? They're they're bringing things to you pretty regularly to take care of. So it's it's not lost lost on you that you're in a highly regulated environment. But on the other side, you're not going and raising you know five or eight or twenty million dollars from one group of guys. You know, uh, Stan, who graduated from Stanford three years ago and and raised a two hundred million dollar fund, and now you need twenty right. million dollars from him, and he's sitting on the board and and got his boot on your neck uh you know to hit the numbers that you produced two years ago you know during the financing so you you haven't taken one lump sum from a small number of people that you're married to somebody can come in the company discover for whatever reason they don't love the way it's being managed and they could leave and they're gone uh and so isn't that the positive side of it is like the money that you need really you can raise as you're going along it's it, it, that's that's right it's much less concentrated right so the, the the power of the capital is less concentrated it's managed through the board of course which which has a lot of power in and of itself no doubt right and is looking uh, on behalf of and working on behalf of all shareholders but you you do have a much broader set of capital you can draw on for sure that's so, that definitely a big plus right would you prefer a, you know to convince 50,000 people to give you $5,000 or you know one guy to give you 20 million <laughs> right which one of those two challenges yeah which which i you know i've i've been involved in and on both sides of the equation and you know both both have 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 uh, positive attributes but for the time being, I, I enjoy being in the public market space. I actually really enjoy talking to investors, updating investors on social media, um, you know, having, um, you know, online sessions where I'm asking lots of different questions, you know, fielding input from a wide variety of different people. One of the things that happens for sure in a public company, because you have so many different folks looking at you regularly, the ideas that get sort of lobbed on, you know, that come to your desk, come to you through email or through text or through social media, is, is there's a wide, wide variety of different suggestions on how to improve the company. And that that particular aspect is very different. And you typically don't see that in a private company because as you said, the capital is very narrowly sourced. And the people that are watching the company are maybe a couple handfuls of individuals plus everybody inside versus potentially hundreds or thousands of investors who are watching a publicly traded company. Yeah, so you enjoy that. That part is... It's incredible the ideas that come out of the woodwork, actually, when you're running a public company. So what is the key, if you have any insight on it, to sort of getting one person who's coming in and says, I'm interested, and obviously you're not pitching one person at a time, but what is the key set of information or the key pitch or the narrative that gets, I think it's really interesting to people, get one person to believe in you to the tune of, you know, $5,000 for for lack of knowing what the number, but a small amount of money, really, you know, what tools do you have to trigger that belief system in you and the company? And I say you, cause you're running it. And, and it's, again, you're not trying to get a $20 million check because we know what those tools are. 
well, you know, that is right. um, a financial model and an audit and, you know, and a pitch and a board of advisors and a um, under, clear understanding of the competition, um, the, the historical metrics, pro, uh, pro forma projections based on, uh, you know, key industry metrics that have been achieved before, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the science being defensible, having patents in place, like these are all the levers that you need to go in and get a, a true kind of institutional financing round. You don't need that for one guy or a family office to believe enough to to take some stock, you know, to for you know, to to make a bid. Right. What right. are the tools that bring those kind of people in supporters um that that you feel like you have today the 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 two things my two uh go to if i can say it that way um resources are one building trust with that individual and that person trust in my team myself trust in my team trust in our our program and second of all um actually not not pitching it's really educating that individual just educating them in terms of what I see and letting them sort of come and stand in my shoes for whatever it is, half hour, hour, however long the conversation is and educate them on what I'm seeing, what I'm doing um, and how I see this particular opportunity. And I, th- I find those two tools work the best out of anything I've tried over the years. It's, it's about walking them through um, how drug development works, right? How the FDA works, how these experiments work, who are the, individuals that are involved um what type of endpoints we're looking at it's it's taking what what just naturally comes to us inside the company what's in my head and explain that in a a fairly easy to understand or understandable way for someone who doesn't do this day in a doubt right because like any industry right if it's you're rattling off names of a whole bunch you know there's a lot, a lot of cool stuff happening in crypto and in ai and you know space travel and electrification i mean every industry's got its really gnarly little ins and outs right and most of us on the outside can't really understand that but if somebody who's inside if the ceo of that company tells me what's happening inside in a way that doesn't make me feel stupid that helps me understand then i'm going to really you know feel a lot more inclined to invest as compared to if they throw a bunch of acronyms at me and a bunch of stuff that makes no sense. Here's what I, I think you have, you guys have is that what you're doing is a known process. It's like a real estate deal, right? And there's not like crypto and NFTs. Those aren't known processes. Those are just right. wild, a wild new. even SaaS software. Those mm. are wild unknowns, how you're going to get traffic, what your conversion rates are, what value you're going to supply to customers, what the churn and attrition. Those are all the like wild unknowns. Good point. Mm. And, and so I feel like in some ways it's a real estate deal or a basketball game. There's rules, right? Right. Yeah. There's referees, there's rules and you're sort of convincing people a we know how to play by the rules we play fair we play hard and this is our game plan and this is why we think we put more points on the, on board, the board that's a that's time. a it's a good point right because there there are definitely there's a there's a set path in terms of yeah how drug development works and it's not being completely made up as we go along like other industries, not that those aren't interesting areas, right? I mean, crypto NFTs, like you mentioned, are 
pretty cool areas at the moment and may end up being gigantic market someday. But we do we do know the basic steps. We think there's maybe some shortcuts. Um, there might be some backdoor ways to to make things a little more efficient. But right, there is there is sort of a known set of guidelines that we all follow. Yeah. So you you sell in something I call the buyer's formula. You're sort of teaching people what? how to buy your product and then giving them autonomy to judge you within that framework. Right. We don't have to sell them on the framework so much because yeah. that's really out of our control. But we can pitch them on, we know what we're doing in that space. Yeah. And our particular chemistry and drugs that we're working on have a high chance of, yeah. of working. It's my favorite kind of selling, which is this exists. This right. is our view on it. If you agree with the way we look at it, and if you agree with our metrics, right, then it's just math that we're going to be successful. So we're not talking about our success. We're not talking about our capability. We're not talking about the market or the TAM or the SAM, you know, or the, the uh, uh, um, demand curve. We're just talking about uh, can we do the things we say we're going to do? Are those reasonable? Uh, and do you have certainty that we'll hit the milestones that we say we're going to hit because if you believe believe in those things then you're in right yeah good 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 points for sure right there is definitely a bit of a pathway that's been tried and trodden by many others ahead so, of us so we could um you know we could have you in here all day doing a master class on how to start run and uh, sell and operate a therapeutics company but and we all have somebody either ourselves you know let's go back to talking about human beings. You know, it's really fun to talk about the stock and the capital markets and the, the capital stack and you know, running a company, but you know, a company like this, there's actually humans involved. So if we know somebody hmm. or we have, you know, in with a pain, chronic pain condition, uh, you know, some of these other sort of PTSD conditions that you mentioned, uh, if we have it ourselves, you know, from the human side, is there anything we can do to support trip and you know and and the company and get behind you know getting these assisting and getting these therapeutics to market as fast you know the approval and into you know doctors and then into patients hands as fast as possible yeah it's inter interesting a question right there's definitely a few there's definitely a few ways right um Part of it is like we're going the whole this whole space of psychedelics is going through a big re regulatory kind of review from a legislative perspective right now. Right. So just recently, the Senate in California um, voted to decriminalize psychedelics. These drugs now are called Schedule One compounds, which means that you can't use them without an exemption. Right. Even for academic studies. So like on one level, if you believe that this chemistry should be out there and available for most of us, which I think it should be, then like literally just calling up your senator, calling up your congressman and getting these drugs moved off a of schedule one and decriminalized would be a fantastic help to everybody in the industry. <clears throat> I mean, the, the other is if you are, um, if you know somebody or if you personally have one of these diseases, then participating in a clinical study would be another way to to participate and and there's many companies that have trials that are up and running they're all available um 
at clintrials.gov. You can look at all you can look it up specifically, or I can give you a reference if that's helpful. So that would be something else that would be, you know, like you would be right there in the thick of supporting the entire space by getting involved in a clinical study, which is, you know, personally, I found um, doing that to be a really pretty exciting way to experience this industry. I mean, and then the, the last is, of course, you can you can support your local academic institution that's working in these. There's many different centers that are getting created in the psychedelic arena. Um, UC San Diego, for example, is just starting a brand new psychedelic um, uh, institute under Mark Geyer, which we're incredibly you know excited about. Um, and you know, others will probably you know emerge. NYU's got a new center. Hopkins has got a big center. Yale's got a big center, but um, you know, the more that are kind of around, the better. We think that UCSF is also going to be pushing very assertively into this space. They've just recruited a fantastic researcher out of London, uh, Robin Carhart Harris, who just joined as of the first of July. So that's another way, you know, as well. That's awesome. Two, two quick more questions. One is what should people who are super stimulated about the space try and avoid, right? So what are the things that you can easily identify as, you know, scams or uh, hoax science or over promising or over optimism where, where, because I know the space is super heated. Yeah. What should people really feel like is, you know, whatever the the therapeutic molecule version of a pyramid scheme. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's, there's definitely hype in, in this space right now, right? In, in psychedelics broadly, um, you know, I, the, my, my advice, right, would be to look at, you know, the companies that you're involved with carefully in terms of where are they in terms of getting in the clinic, right? Where are they in terms of starting clinical studies and actually dosing patients, dosing human beings, with their chemistry that, that I think is a really high litmus test because to get to that point means you had to check off so many different boxes of manufacturing material to a certain standard, getting through the FDA approval process, getting through institutional review board process, writing a protocol, writing informed consent, all these, just a pile of paperwork and other things to actually get to the point where you can dose your patient. So that I, I would look really carefully for that particular you know, marker and that milestone. Excellent. Uh, and then a really pointed question is we said, I have 17 oxycodone left, you know, uh, uh, and, and for people like me, how long specifically do I have to yeah. make those last <laughs> until right. we get this goddamn FDA approval done? It's 17 <laughs> divided by, yeah, you're, it's, it's going to be five okay. to 10 years. How tight, probably. I, how tight am I cutting? You're these? tight. <laughs> you're, you're cutting these pretty tight. Cause it, unfortunately, based on the way the FDA works right now, it's going to be a while. It's going to be probably five years. I would guess. Now there, there is a chance potentially, I mean, there's some already some chatter that based on a few of the larger trials undergoing right now, the FDA could provide approval without the traditional two phase three studies, yeah. but we'll, we'll see. Right. But it's going to be, well, it's not going to be multiple decades, but I think it's going to be five, at least five years. Well, given, as you mentioned, the history in the culture and in science, this isn't a lung cancer treatment in which they've just invented the molecule. Right. It's never been introduced to right. human systems. It's, been it's around never for been exposed yeah. to human, this, you know, exposed to human biology. It's been around for a long time. So hopefully 
for your sake, you know, and the company and the investors and for and for the patients. and patients, obviously, uh, the FDA sees some way to speed it up. So I want to, Greg, I want to thank you for coming in here. You are, by the way, for people listening who are also senior management or starting companies, like listen to this again, Greg answers the questions. He's very articulate on the space. These are not uh, phoned in answers. He's, he's thinking about it, putting it in context, bringing in specific details and then marrying them to the broader uh, um, science and industries in like that is real CEO work. I mean, I, I have guys come in. Thank you. Just, no, thank you <laughs> for doing it. Uh, I have guys come in here and just phone it in. You know, they just given the pat answers that are in the PPM, you know, or in the 10 K eight K super eight K filing. Uh, mm. And, you know, you don't actually don't need them on the podcast that like you could just read, read the document. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, but I think you are for me, and I just want to call this out for people who are listening really dead of center for how you want to represent your company, the ability to get into the details you know, when, when a senior management can get into the details of the drug, of the the industry, and then come back out and talk strategy and trends and context as well, it just gives so much comfort to the investor, to the customers that that somebody is really in charge of the deal. And you represent your company in that way. It's It's really refreshing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's been been great to spend a little bit of time with you today and definitely worth, worth the drive up to Carlsbad from La Jolla this afternoon. Yeah, I love it when people say, yeah, it was definitely worth the drive. You know, it was over six miles, you know, and <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. Uh, so it's <laughs> a very uh, uh, thank you. OK, it was like 30 okay. miles. Or yeah, so. okay. that's, it wasn't that's that far. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> great to have you here. Hey, and um, I hope we get to have you again as this company develops. It's super exciting. Thank look you, forward Greg. to it. Yeah, great. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening, and be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaff.com daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.